I'm Interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Welcome back to I'm Interested. This is Mike Greenberg, and this is the final installment of this podcast for this fall season. And what a good time I have had doing these long-form interviews and I'm really gratified for all of you who have chosen to listen. You know, the long-form interview is something that through much of my life was readily available on television pretty much every day and certainly on radio, and it's something that is sort of going away in in a world of shorter attention spans and um, people just don't have that kind of time or that kind of interest in this format, in, in these kinds of interviews. And it seemed to me that a podcast was a pretty good place to try and do this. So we've tried it here. We've talked during the, the course of this fall to some of the legendary sports voices and chroniclers. And today, one of my absolute favorites, Tom Rinaldi, will finish up the season. There's nobody who captures the spirit of sports, I think, better than he does in words. And and so what I'd like to ask you to do uh, as we enjoy this final conversation and this final installment of this time together um, is to let me know by going and, and leaving this podcast a rating and a review. If you would subscribe to this podcast, I'm interested, and leave us a rating and a review, letting us know that you'd like to see it continue, because I will take a, a few weeks off here. And if if there are encouraging signs, if you sort of send me signals that you want to do it, then I would like to come back and do another series in the spring uh, or even before, perhaps even in the winter, perhaps come back and do it right after the first of the year, come up with a theme. I like the idea of a theme. Maybe I'll, you can help me pick out a theme. Um, as to who you would like to see interviewed here. But I need to know that you want to hear it because I know that there is a dwindling uh, audience for this kind of conversation. So let's be honest with ourselves and each other. If you want this podcast to continue, go ahead and please uh, not only subscribe to it, but leave us a rating and a review. Let me know that you'd like to see it continue. And and if I see that there's interest in it, I most definitely will do it. Meanwhile, before we bring in Rinaldi, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How does 25-year-old two-time MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo get drafted 15th overall in a weak class? Adrian Wojnarowski investigates the twists and turns that led to a franchise and league-altering selection in 2013. It's a three-part series that tells this unique story, including interviews with individuals close to the process, as well as a one-on-one sit-down with Giannis himself. You can check out the Woj Pod special, The Giannis Draft, wherever you find your podcasts. And with that, the table is set. Here comes Tom Rinaldi in three, two, and one. Here we go. He is, as I always say, as good as absolutely anyone, not only today, but that I've ever seen at capturing the spirit and the emotion of sports through words. Uh, He is ESPN's own Tom Rinaldi, and he joins us here on I'm Interested. Thank you, Tom. How are you? I'm great, Greeny. And I'm going to begin with what may sound like faint praise. I don't know how you do it. After all the years that you've done this, been on the radio, now on Get Up, now doing both, now doing the podcast, you don't have to do something that you absolutely excel at in this format. And it is the bump with a tease. (laughs) No one is better at having me stay through the break than you by teasing what's going to come next. 
with a question, with a guest, with whatever it might be. And now you don't have to do that in this format. I wonder if there's a void in your life. <laughs> it's funny. You know, the the tease, which which is, I mean, it's a critical part of this, right? It, it's a critical part of broadcasting. People don't recognize that the fundamentals, the blocking and tackling of broadcasting, they matter. And, you know, your job fundamentally as a broadcaster is to make people want to continue listening or watching. But the danger in it, I tell people all the time, is you can't oversell it. So what I can't say is, coming up next, I'm going to tell you the most incredibly impactful piece of information you will ever hear in your entire life. And then you come back, you know, and you give them some meaningless stat on Baltimore, Tennessee, and now they're not listening. Now you're the host who cried wolf. So there's a fine line to be walked there. I got it. Well, you walk it masterfully. That you do. I mean, you do many, many things really well. That is an unsung, absolutely ace quality you possess. All right. Well, thank you very much. Anyway, it's my pleasure to have you here. This is the final installment of this podcast for the season. I've done uh, through this fall 10 interviews with 10 different uh, people who I enjoy watching or listening to or reading in some cases, you know, chronicling sports, some of whom have been around a really long time. We had Vern Lundquist earlier this season and Chris Berman and some who are more current to what's going on now, like yourself. And as I did just a tiny bit of research to do this interview, I just want to read an entire paragraph that I came across, every bit of which I found fascinating about Tom Rinaldi. Prior to his career in journalism, Rinaldi was a high school English and English as a second language teacher, in addition to being a handball coach at Morris High School in the Bronx, New York. I find every bit of that fascinating. Let's start with the the handball. You were a handball coach? (laughs) I was, Greeny, the most urban in New York of sports. And for people, just so we're absolutely clear, this isn't team handball that you somehow stumble across on the sixth on the Ocho or on at the Olympics. It also is not a hand, like a, a racquetball that we're referring to as handball. This is where you hit the very, very hard rubber ball. It's not a soft Spalding with your hands. And the object is to hit it as low on the wall as you can so that your opponent can't get to it after that first bounce. Um, I did that. The most urban of sports, the Morris High School Bulldogs, yeah, in, in the South Bronx. That was, yeah, I did that. It's true. How did you get good enough at handball? I grew up playing that. I, I grew up in the city, so I know from handball. And, right. and that is the game that we grew up playing. But we played it with a Spalding. We did not play it with a hard ball. We played it outside just against the wall of the building I grew up in. And we played it with the Spalding. But how, how, how did you get good enough at that to coach it? Those who can play, Greeny. Those who can't teach or coach. That's my short answer. No, I'm not claiming any great acumen or skill at it, believe me, nor would the, nor would the, the players who I coached claim it either. That's for sure. So the part that surprised me about that was the handball. The part that did not surprise me at all was that you were an English teacher because anyone who listens to you, I think, recognizes your extraordinary way with words. T- take me through a little bit of that. Not not the teaching part, but but your fascination with the language because it, it, it shines through all of your work and I think it is um, I think it is what has made you very universally well-liked and respected in this. Where, where did that start for you? That's very kind to say, Greeny. I think it starts in, in a, just a really simple place and that's I've always loved stories and I think stories are the way we help to understand the world and the way we help to expand our view of it, as well as understand 
our own lives and the moments that we go through that may feel lonely, where we feel separate or apart from others. Stories are such great connective tissue. They also defy, Greeny, the 10,000-hour rule, right, that, you know, to master something, to really fully um, become proficient at it, become a genius at it, you need to devote 10,000 hours to it. You can hear a story, though, one time, and it can stay with you forever, for years. There's a great power in that. There's also a great magic and wonder in that. When, when you turn the TV off, you know, one of the goals is, or when you shut the tablet or the laptop, one of the goals after having told a story is, does that person want to then share it with someone else and say, wow, I saw this. I read this. Let me tell you about this. And right now, Greeny, one of the most wonderful things about being able to tell sports in our space, I mean, being able to tell stories in our space in sports is to me, it's one of the last great chronicles of greatness. So much of what we read and consume is so critical and cynical and jaded. And I get it. The sports as an institution absolutely has problems. It's got dark corners. It's got things that are wrong with it, deeply so. But it also maintains these precincts of wonder, these portraits that inspire for real we, you and I, have been doing this a long time. And one of the things I find so impressive about you, Greeny, is you've maintained that. You can hear it. You can see it. You're still moved by the wonder of what you've seen, what could happen, what did happen. And that's what's led me to this absolutely improbable career where I've had the opportunity to, to share some of the stories that have stirred me so much and I've tried to render them in ways that might stir others. No, I think you're exactly right. And and you have done that as well as anybody. And one of the things I would say is that the, I think the reason that I still feel this way after 30 years of covering is that at some point the games themselves start to sort of meld together in your mind and in your memory. Um, and the importance of them may fade a touch but what, what we cover are people. What we cover, when, when people say that sports are the ultimate reality show, I think that's accurate because these are people, and in this day and age, they've become very famous people for the most part, and we are actually watching the great drama of their lives play out right in front of our eyes. This is real. It's not soft scripted. It's not in any way scripted. Um, there are winners and losers, and there is happiness, and there is sadness, and there is controversy, and there are all the things, all the makings of these stories that, that are played out within the framework of these games. But the reality is that it's about the people. It's the people that have not only remained interesting to me, but I think have become more interesting to me over the course of time, if only because we've gotten to know them so much better than we had the, the ability to know athletes when you and I were growing up. Why is it, Greeny, that people love the draft? Mm. Why? Yes, they want to see who their team is going to have, what the potential is for but why does it exceed that fan base? Remember that there's, I mean, listen, we get that the NFL is the number one sport in the country. We also understand that fantasy and betting and all of those things are a big part of that too. But the draft, it's because we're able to see a, a young person achieve a dream in a public way. To walk across a stage 
in a way that we viscerally respond to. Wow, look at what that person did to work that hard to get to this point to then step across the threshold and achieve it. And I think agreeing, yes, we always love the games. I I still love it. I still, because I've been so privileged to cover some of the things that I have to be courtside at, at center court or to be on the field for the kick six or the bush push or to be there when Bush threw out the first pitch, you know, post 9-11, or to be there when Jordan hit the, the final shot in game six. I've been there for all those things which are indelible to me. But what supersedes those are the stories of the players that's, that really make up those moments. I, I couldn't agree more. The games are great. But the stories behind those who author them, that, that's what stays with me most. Well said. The only part of it I disagree with is if you're a fan of the Jets like I am, the draft is actually your best day of the year. That, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fellow Jet fan, so I feel your pain. The really, only thing absolutely. we have to look forward to. All right, Rinaldi, let, let's let's go through some of these things. So, so I thought what I would do here, because you cover so many, you just ran through a, a litany of them, you cover so many different sports, that I thought I would ask you to do the impossible, and that, and that is to try and describe the, the most memorable event you've covered in, in, in each of the different sports. So let's start with golf, which is my favorite sport. If you were to, and, and, and you are always the one who was there doing the interviews with the players and all of that, if you were to pick out a moment that you think is the most indelible for you in your career covering golf, which is the moment? I think this is actually the easiest one, Greening, and I'm sure it's the one you would pick too. It's 2019 Masters. Yeah. It's to see Tiger. Golf is our most, and I know you love golf, Greeny. Golf mm-hmm. is our most generational game because we continue to play it and then we share it with our children who then pass it on to theirs. And that generational moment from 97 and the iconic bear hug between Tiger and Earl to then all the years, all the struggles later to see Tiger greet Sam and Charlie to then be the dad with his kids and to hear his name chanted as he makes the, you know, the fairly lengthy walk from the 18 green all the way down into scoring to see the guys that came out of the champions locker room, all wearing their green jackets there to greet him, the fellow competitors that he had bested all of that. I, that is the most memorable moment. And there's been a lot of great, great moments. Major championship golf delivers. I mean, I was there when Tiger made the putt at Torrey Pines that led to the playoff against Rocco, the whole thing. But that moment, because of what it signified in terms of comeback and spirit and refusal to quit and all the things that Woods had gone through, some of which, of course, he brought upon himself, others that where his body broke down, it was so powerful. And, and I was amazed. I don't know about you, Greeny. The number of people that reached out to me with so much emotion, yeah, how emotional they were at watching it, how much it moved them. I, I, I was I was astounded at that. That resonated as much as anything I've ever been, uh, anything I've ever covered with, with with the broadest number of people. Tiger in nineteen at the Masters. I totally agree. I knew you would say that, and and. Among the many reasons why it's his story, right, is the narrative arc of his story. You're right. It is coming full circle, a man and his son in, in embrace, in triumph 
on the 18th green at the most famous golf course in the world. And it was the same and it was different all those years later. But it's also our story. You know, in 1997, when he won that first Masters, George W. Bush was the governor of Texas and Tom Brady was the backup quarterback at Michigan. Things in sports don't usually last that long. So so when someone like him can recapture that, it also gives us the ability, I think, to recapture a little bit of where we were then, a little bit of 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 our youth, of whatever life was like for us 22 years ago. We can feel that a little bit. So I think there's something that we watch and, and, and we we feel his emotion. But I think there's also something very personal about it. And I think that's the reason people were as emotional reaching out to you as they were. That's, I think that's beautifully said. I do. I, I think that we, it conjures us and transports us back too. And listen, let's face it, the, the two most enduring thematic stories that, that we resonate most with as a country that we believe in most as part of our ethos are the underdog and the comeback, the underdog and the comeback. And the Tiger's comeback is just absolutely unforgettable in that moment. Yeah, I, th- I think that there's, you know, the best example of this I can give you is that there's something about people who stick around a very long time in sports, and golf is a sport where you can do that more than any other. Right. Th- that we, we become attached to them even if we don't, if we didn't always root for them because it brings us back in a way to ourselves. And the best description of that I could offer would be in my youth, I was a tennis player and a tennis fan. Jimmy Connors was the player in the 70s I always rooted against. I always rooted against him. I rooted against him when he played Borg. I rooted against him when he played McEnroe. I rooted against him when he played Vilas. I rooted against him all the time. And then, all those years later, all the rest of them have retired. And there was Jimmy still out there, and he made this improbable run to the U.S. Open semifinals, and I was rooting for him like my life depended on it. And I think it was just because it was... It was the last vestige of something that had been special to me once before, and there I was sort of clinging to it some more. I, I don't know that I'm explaining it well, but that that's what I mean when I say it's as much about us, I think, as it is about those that we are watching. And I think you make a perfect transition to tennis, Greeny, yeah. and yeah. The, the enduring great, right, and, and how, why that resonates with us. I don't know how much longer, you know, I'll cover tennis and we're not promised anything. You, not me, no, but, but I know this, this era never is such a huge word and it's thrown around as if it's light. It's not, it's a heavy word, but green to, to enter the decade, right. Of 2010 and then to enter the decade of 2020 in an individual sport and have the same three guys be the top three in the world is mind blowing Mm. to dominate the sport the way they have fed Rafa and Djokovic is, I just don't know that we'll ever see it again. And the most certainly for me, there have been unbelievable moments from Murray ending the 77 year drought at Wimbledon even to the heartbreak of Fed looking like he was going to win Wimbledon and getting broken when he had it on his serve and having Djokovic come back in the first ever tie break in, in a men's final to some of the incredible matches at the, at the U.S. Open in the city. 
be, tennis is just a, a tremendous, tremendous sport filled with drama. No one there to help you, right, Greeny? You're out there by yourself. You got to figure it out. And and you, we've seen Serena figure it out magnificently and fail to do so. We've seen Naomi Osaka rise, right? We've seen Maria Sharapova not be able to get past Serena, all of it. So to be able to be around those players and get to know them a bit, in particular Fed and Rafa, that's just an unbelievable privilege. It, it, It really is. And Rafa, to me, is the single greatest embodiment of effort of any athlete I've ever seen. He pours more into every single point, every moment of practice, everything he does. You want to talk about being intentional. He is the, just the greatest example of effort. And it, I, I, it endlessly inspires me. He, he's just an, an incredible competitor, Rafa. And I, I know whether folks are tennis fans or not, I just think catch these guys before they're done. Watch them. Behold these guys. They're incredible. I'm with you there. And I, 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 my favorite is Federer, and I think he's one of the most graceful um, and oh. dignified champions I've ever seen in any sport. I, that, so I was going to ask you about that sport next. I generally associate you with the U.S. Open. I see you there doing the interviews and the trophies and everything else is there. So those are the players, obviously, the great players. You just named them, the three on the men's side and Serena, who've been there forever. Is there a moment that stands out for you the most? So can I tell you a, a moment off camera here of course. Greedy, that I that I think is just I had the unbelievable opportunity last fall to step away from football for a week from game day in college football and go with Roger Federer on an exhibition tour of South America and Latin America, Central America hmm. to do five countries in six days. And it was just an unbelievable experience. We had an opportunity to do it, put together a a real quick turnaround, half-hour documentary about it. And everyone at the end was absolutely fried. I mean, he's just finished his last of these matches in Quito, Ecuador. He's going to get on a plane, fly to New York, and do seven media appearances because he's an investor in a shoe company. Everyone is toast. It's 9,500-foot altitude. And there's a quiet moment. Federer comes to the the private airstrip. He signs every autograph, takes every photo, and the crew and I and Federer and his team are in a bus driving on the tarmac from the sort of central shelter at the airstrip out to the plane. And for just a moment, the lights are turned off in this sort of larger van, and it's quiet. And suddenly, a voice pierces the silence and starts singing Feliz Navidad (laughs) at the top of his lungs. And he's slapping on his thigh, and he's singing Feliz Navidad, and it's Federer. His energy... I don't just mean vibe. His vibe's awesome. I mean, the guy's raw energy, Greeny, is unmatched. Mm. Uh, his agent, Tony Godsick, who's just a tremendous guy, had said to me, do me a favor, Tom. Don't engage him on the flight. He's got to get some rest. He's got all these media appearances in New York, et cetera. I'm telling you, Greeny, we got on the plane. 
he probably talked two and a half or three hours. Just <laughs> he didn't even think about sleeping. Hmm. He, he just his curiosity. When you're that big, when you're a global icon, it's easy to have the world bend to your will. He remains curious about you, your family, your experience. He remains open-hearted to others. He, it, it, all of what you see, I think, is incredibly is almost just the surface of how gracious and how just a, what an incredible man he is. And, and we got a chance to see that in, in a different kind of way when we made that trip. So that one moment, there, there's many, but that moment stands out where everyone's exhausted and he breaks out into Feliz Navidad. That's a great story. What, what a story that is. And again, it's I, it wasn't Christmas time, obviously, but it's, maybe it's the song that he knows in Spanish, but one way or another, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's a yep. heck of a story. Yep. I love it. All right, next one is college football. Uh, everyone associates you with that. We see you on college game day, and we see you at all the big games. What what is uh, what is the moment for you in that sport? So, uh, I mean, I, I'll pick two. Um, one is the kick six. Mm. It was not our game. It's a CBS game. As you know, Greeny, they have the, the SEC package. But we were there to cover it for post. And after Davis makes the run, we went down toward that end zone. He was exhausted. It looked like he was going to fall over. His teammates had mobbed him, and we interview him, and we think he's just going to fall forward and collapse. He does the interview with us, and then we try to make our way to the locker room. We, we had our own security. We had state troopers. It was the most wild field rush scene I've ever been a part of. And just to see that unfold, Saban fighting for the one second left, trying the 50, whatever it was, seven, 58-yard field goal, and then, so there's that. Right. The second is second and 26. And that's incredible because you could say, well, why isn't it winning basically with Deshaun to Hunter Renfro and that they win with less than five seconds to go? But second and 26, Greeny, you can't make that up as a movie tour. And Jalen, you just can't. And I remember, you know, I'm the stooge that's got to run out there and and get with Saban and, you know, and ask the questions. I'm the guy from Jersey with the bad haircut and it's total <laughs> chaos. And Saban says to me, I'm asking the questions right now. <laughs> Apropos, of, he's just so happy. And then he declared, I've never been happier. And I said, never? And he said, never. (laughs) When we we were done, obviously, Georgia was absolutely gutted, gutted. And I made my way to the Georgia locker room and saw uh, Kirby Smart. And sometimes, Greeny, the moments that you're able to spend in the other locker room are among the most personal and memorable when you see the players who you've gotten to know and you see the coaches who you've gotten to know and just how devastated they are. Those are really, really powerful moments. I had the opportunity after Alabama lost to Clemson uh, when Trevor Lawrence just dominated them two years ago. And it was just myself, Saban, and Jimmy Sexton, his agent, and just to see him process that, to see him go over Greeny to a player who is on the floor weeping and pick him up and talk to him 
and love on him and hug him. The things that you don't necessarily see in, in a lot of the fire and the blast on the sideline. It, college football, Greeny, is such a magnificent sport. I know the NFL. I love the NFL. But there's something forever aspirational about college. And there's, uh, to me, there's a magic to it. There always will be. Tom Rinaldi, one more, and, and that is, you know, all of us who cover this stuff, um, there are always stories that resonate with us more than others and that, that for some reason become a part of us. And and so I wonder, for those who don't know Tom, all of Tom's work, you wrote a book called The Red Bandana about Wells Crowther, who was um, one of those who died in the World Trade Center. And it was a, a book I know because I've talked to you about it in the past, it, the inspiration for it came when you did the story for television, and, and obviously it became important enough to you that you wrote a book about it. And I would love, for those who don't know the story, if you could just sort of share quickly the details of the story, but then why did that one, I understand the power of it, but why did it become so important to you that you wrote a book about it? So, uh, Greeny, I'll say, again, the simple summary, as you say, the simple summary of that story is Wells Crowther was an athlete, at Boston College, he played lacrosse, outstanding athlete, great student. He'd also been a volunteer firefighter because that's what his dad had done when he, when he grew up in Nyack, New York. He's at a college two years. And for anyone who's listening to this, who's perhaps at that point or farther in your life, take a second and think about where you were when you were 24. You, Green, where you were in your career, mm-hmm. what the stakes were. What, would, what you thought would be ahead of you, what, whatever hopes and aspirations and dreams and big decisions, whatever the stakes were in your life. And here's Wells Crowther on the 104th floor of the South Tower. He's working for Sandler O'Neill, and he's just moved from research to the trading desk. And he, he's in a spot that so many people would want to be in. And when the, when the Flight 175 hits that South Tower, the south facade of the tower, Crowther makes his way down a staircase to the 78th floor sky lobby, and he rescues a group of people, leads them down to the 61st floor where the air is clear, including carrying one woman across his back, and then he goes back up, and he leads a second group to safety. He ultimately makes his way all the way down, but does not get out of the building before it collapses. His identity is unknown. His identity becomes discovered when his parents catch one sentence in a New York Times article reconstructing the final moments of what happened and a reference to this heroic young man who covered his face with a red bandana, a bandana that his father had given him that had become a touchstone in his life. Not that single bandana, but a bandana like it that he would use in different versions through his life. It was not my idea to, we were privileged to be able to, to do this at the 10 year anniversary because of a guy that you and I both know, Greeny, Drew Gallagher, mm-hmm. who now oversees College Game Day, who was a classmate of Wells, who wanted to tell his story. So we did it the 10 year anniversary, and the story resonated in a way we never could have imagined. It led to the Red Bandana game happening at BC we would learn that it played a role in President Obama 
mentioning Wells by name at the dedication of the 9-11 Memorial Museum. It just, it was a story that captured for so many people through the tale of one life lost, what the day represented beyond its terrible loss and pain, that it represented courage and calling and character and citizenry. It represented sacrifice. It represented all the things we want to believe we might possess in the most difficult moment that this young man possessed. Uh, publisher, the great, great publisher, Scott Moyers with Penguin Press reached out and said, do you think it's a book? I said, I don't know. I approached the family about it, not with the intention of writing it, Green, but Allison and the late Jeff Crowther, who passed last year, said, we'll do it if you write it. And that's ultimately what led to the book, which, you know, was a, just a, I'm forever indebted to the family for entrusting me to do that. And we've been so humbled by the fact that the book has really found its place, Greeny, in school curriculums. And there's a young reader's version. There's an adult version, which has become freshman reads in colleges and in high schools. And for a new generation for whom 9-11 is not a memory, it's history, which is almost incomprehensible to say out loud, but it's true. Mm. So that's what led to the red bandana. It's an extraordinary story. And, and it's a perfect way to wrap up the serious part of this conversation, but I will leave it with a, with the smiling part of this conversation, which is, Tom knows this, um, that I have only one celebrity crush. And um, <laughs> <laughs> he knows he knows immediately where this is going. Uh, my, my daughter, oh, no. my daughter during the pandemic, all of us, I don't watch TV, so I, to give you some indication of the ridiculous nature of my existence, I, I have been working in television for 30 years, but I, I watch almost no television outside of sports. But during the pandemic, my daughter was home from college and she's, you know, cranky about it. And she has fallen in love with watching Law & Order SVU. So she has it on all the time. So I would sit with her and I started watching the show and it is a very good show. I enjoy watching the show. I'm sure I'm not telling anyone anything they don't already know. It's only been on the air for 23 years or something. Um, and I have developed a little bit of a celebrity crush on the woman who plays Olivia Benson, Mariska Hargitay. And then I find out of your connection. And I've never been more impressed with anyone than I was when I found this out. <laughs> so what is the, for those who don't know, what is the connection? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Mariska who has played Olivia Bent in the shows and it's like green. You've nailed it there. It's in its 22nd season, which is uh, record breaking. She's been the lead. She's carried the, the show forever from the very beginning as its lead character through all kinds of cast changes and everything that can happen across a generation of time. She is married to uh, one of my very best friends and I was the best man at their wedding. I was there when he very first started to date her, when the relationship was just beginning. Um, and she was already uh, a, a star of note without question. She was already a big star. And I would kill him about that fact. Like, man, what, what has gone? I mean, she obviously is not getting out enough. For, <laughs> uh, and his name is Peter Herman. And Peter, who's 
an excellent actor in his own right has gone on to to be a part of the the Tony Award winning production of War Horse at Lincoln Center. Uh, he's been in movies that Clint Eastwood has directed. He's one of the leads of a show called Younger, um, which is in its sixth season, which has a huge following. Um, so he's a, and he's also a writer, and he's a phenomenal, phenomenal artist and talent. But through him, I've gotten to know Mariska, and you know, and obviously I, I don't know her as Olivia Benson. I know her as Mariska. You know, the good friend of mine and the wife of one of my best friends. Yeah. So whenever it comes up, as it did for Greeny, there's always some initial moment of shock. And that's very quickly followed by true, real skepticism. Like, no. And then when I sense that, I do the shameful thing of shooting a text photo or something like that. Like, not from now. I'm Sometimes I shoot, I send one over from now, and sometimes I send one over from, I don't know, 20 years ago. And I think I might have done that. <laughs> I might have sent you both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I have them. Oh, I have the pictures. And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, I mean, the, the character is so iconic, I subsequently find out, that did you know that Taylor Swift has a cat named Olivia Benson? She named her cat Olivia Benson. Of this, I am very aware. Yes, I am. Okay, you are All of this is great. All of this, Greeny, is great fodder in my friendship with Peter. Yeah. Believe me. Yeah. All of this is a way to get, because, uh, you know, Mariska, you're not a star like that without boundless charisma and beauty and all the things that make you such a successful actor. And Peter is a pretty good looking dude himself. So uh, we got to try to keep him in check, and we try to do that at every opportunity, Greeny. Every opportunity. So listen, I mean, of all of the things, I mean, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a, a raconteur extraordinaire, and you've been there for all the greatest moments in the history of sports. But this was when I was really impressed when, when you sent me <laughs> when you said this came up so randomly. Also, I, I don't even remember how I found this out. I, I think I was mentioning this to someone that I've been watching the show all the time. And, you know, I mean, mostly jokingly, obviously, I was just like, boy, that the, the woman, who, uh, the star of that show is just phenomenal. They said, you know, Rinaldi is, was the best man in her wedding. And that was when I sought you out because I needed to get I needed the I'm a reporter, too. You know, so I, I, I went after that story and I feel very good that I got the details and I have them. I have them accurately. And now they have been they're on the record um, and they're part of the record officially for all of posterity. So. So that's as good as it gets. Anyway, I can't think of a better way to finish up this season of this podcast than this conversation. You, you remain just a fascinating person. We should we should play handball sometime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I prefer to golf, Greeny. Okay. I, I prefer to golf. I know you're a good stick. I do, too. And, and so you could help me. You let's help do me that. In that regard. Hey, man, it's a pleasure. Continue the wonderful work, and I appreciate this time, and I will see you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, and so again, my thanks to Tom Rinaldi, and that is it for our season. It has been a delight for me, and I am so appreciative for all of you who've chosen to spend this time together listening to these long-form interviews. Again, I'll remind you, if you'd like to see this continue and for us to do another season in the winter, the easiest way that you can let us know that is by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating and a review. And just let me know that you want to see us keep doing it, and we will come up with a theme again. Maybe we'll ask you to help us pick a theme for the winter, and we'll do a new series of interviews then. In the meantime, thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed it. I'm interested. I'm Mike Greenberg.